Hello, everyone. My name is Jason Ramirez, and welcome to the Hit List Podcast, a podcast where me and a guest cross off films from our watch list and discuss them. This is season five, episode five. Today, I'm joined by someone I've been following on Instagram because of their aesthetic and for their love for film noir. He's a writer, he's a cinephile just like me, and everyone, please give a warm welcome to Alex Velov. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Welcome, welcome. Before we get started, I have two questions for you, just a little icebreaker. Sure first one is whenever you sit down to watch a movie do you stick to your favorites or like watch something new i try to watch something new i rarely rewatch unless i love the film and then if i love the film i'll, I'll have seen it like five times but uh mostly i try to expand and keep uh, uh you know churning over the uh, the soil keep it fresh you know yeah awesome my second question for you uh, I kind of ask the same. I try to do like a different icebreaker to each episode. But uh, I, I like this question from the last episode with Rebecca. So my question for you is, what's something about you that people would be surprised to know? What's something about me that people would be surprised to know? Um, I uh, lately in the last year or so, I've gotten really into going out into uh, the desert. Mm. So I. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the West Coast out here. LA is really close to uh, a lot of desert territory. And I like finding uh, petroglyphs or pictographs, like uh, indigenous Native American rock art, um, old carvings or paintings, centuries old, and finding them, going out deep into uh, Joshua Tree usually, and uh, finding these uh, sacred grounds just to take a photo, be very respectful. Uh, I just find it incredible that humans have been uh, creating, have had this impetus, this drive to tell stories or relate their existence through art on uh, cave walls, boulder faces, um, uh, you know, against rock slabs uh, for centuries. And often, sometimes the meaning is lost. But uh, yeah, I, so I guess the fact about me is I will venture into the desert <laughs> with just like my phone as a GPS uh, I always let everyone know where I'm going ahead of time because, <laughs> you know, stuff can happen out there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I really like exploring on my own out in the desert when it's not like crazy hot season, you know, like not not May to uh, August. But, uh, yeah, that's like kind of a weird new thing I've gotten into since moving back down to L.A. is uh, exploring just the weird parts of the human history in the desert, uh, even mines abandoned model t's uh that's one of the fun parts of living down here that's really cool i never would have thought about that so i'm very glad i asked that question i'm going to keep that question for the next person who comes on it's a great question it's great <laughs> it also it, it, i love that you didn't tell me so it's a very honest response because if i knew ahead of time i might have oh tried to sound clever yeah. you know <laughs> yeah yeah so that's you know that's that's maybe a fun fact about me i think people might not know yeah Th that's the thing about icebreaker is that i i was one of the rare kids who didn't dread icebreakers because i want to get to know my classmates you know like even for like until college i love the icebreakers the thing i didn't like about icebreakers is because is when you're the first one to answer the question like oh uh, like what what's your purpose in life i don't know i don't know <laughs> dude for, i also love when people have really boring icebreaker facts they're not really facts they're like well i'm kind of kooky i like football <laughs> You know what I mean? Oh, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of a crazy guy. I saw Space Jam two with my wife. It's like okay, that's just <laughs> come on. That's that's not even a fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do have advice for people who are like leaders of clubs or, um, you know, school clubs or trying to be like an adult, like introduce people to each other or whatever. The, if you if there's like a small group of people and they don't know each other very well, try two truths and a lie. It's a very good icebreaker. It'll get you talking for for like probably hours if you don't stop them, you know? It's a very good one. So two truths and a lie is a very good one if it's a small group of people. If it's a large group of people, there's one that we always use for like this other scholarship group I was a part of. Who was your celebrity crush when you were like five years old? It's, it's, it's a unique one. Yeah, something simple. Like, what do you think of OJ Simpson? You know, something very simple, non-controversial. <laughs> no, just... <laughs> In a large group, yeah, I can just imagine. No, I, I totally hear you. I mean, I, I, there's the basic ones that like I already have like immediate responses to just from lifetime of like, mm. what's your favorite color? What's your favorite song? You know, like yeah. it's nice to have those in the back pocket. Uh, yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> what's kind of a, what's kind of annoying is when someone just doesn't know and takes so long deciding. It's not annoying. Um... It's more just kind of like. Yeah, it's like, it's like oh, come on, you've been you've been asked this before at some point, you know, but or just say something. It's it's not like it's 
that's fine. I'm not. I'm not getting grumpy about it. It's just like you know, it's kind of boring to wait there and see. And eventually, it's like blue. It's like, oh well, okay. That's like, not a con- <laughs> not a controversial decision. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. But uh, I don't want to get too sidetracked with the icebreaker questions. For I sure. want to talk about the topic for this movie, for this podcast about movies. The film we'll be discussing today is Murder by Contract, released in 1958. Murder by Contract is a 1958 American film noir crime film centering on an existentialist hitman assigned to kill a woman. The film is directed by Irving Lerner and stars Vince Edwards, Philip Pine, Herschel Bernardi, and Caprice Toriel. This film was on Alex's list. Alex, why was this film on your list? I, I want to be honest, I don't remember where I first heard it recommended it had just always been floating around um i really am interested in the noirs at the end of the classic period Mm. so a lot of people consider the golden noir era to be from 1940 to 1960 if you're getting really specific about it some people will even say it's just the maltese falcon 1941 to touch of evil 1958 so Yeah, that's a little too the parameters. I just like 1940 <laughs> to 1960 uh, as like a general overview. Uh, anything after being neo-noir, anything before proto-noir or influence. Uh, those two decades is where you find most of them. And uh, the 50s ones are bizarre because you'll note they really start competing with TV. They mm. really start like trying to get people away from the easy, cheap, somewhat tawdry entertainment um also, the Hayes Code censorship is sort of slowly being chipped away by the 50s. So by the end of the 50s, you get very suggestive scenes that they would never would have dreamed of in the 40s. I mean, there's this interesting thing. When World War II ended, suddenly studios were allowed to have dark endings, right? Because mm. during wartime, why would you be telling these negative pessimistic downbeat stories for a public trying to support the war effort you know so suddenly all these films uh, especially post-war are uh have dark really depressing finales and uh, people kind of point to this as uh, one of the trends in noir so by mm. the 50s it all just gets exaggerated the uh the the murders are weirder uh the the, the costumes are more suggestive Things might be just more perverse than they were. Uh, it's all just sort of turned up to 11 by the late 50s. So I was particularly interested in that this title was from that era. So you also gave me a, a list of like three films you wanted to choose for this film. You gave me like kind of like the final decision. The reason why I chose this one is because the tagline on the poster is murder is double for women because women are double the trouble. Something like that. And I just thought that was the most hilarious tagline. I was like, I have to see this. And I'm glad I chose this film because it's it was it was unlike what I thought it would be in the sense that it's more philosophy to it than I expected it to be from like 1950s film noir. Um, I'm more used. Hey, to- it's still gonna be. It's still gonna have those misogynist marketing. Touches, it is, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, and but no, it's yeah. it's re- yeah. Sorry, but uh, I I I know what you're saying in that like a good a, a tagline with a hook. Oh man, yeah. Some of them are like. You know, I mean, the most famous one in Alien, in space, no one can hear you scream. I mean, oh, yeah. some of them go beyond the poster themselves. So uh, it's really funny that, that that's what that's what really caught you on this one. Uh, that's awesome. That's a cool. Uh, what what were the, do you remember what the other ones I suggested were by any chance? I think one of them was the Pink Flamingo. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's um, written by a, a famous. Uh, it's based on a, a, a novel from a famous uh, author who also wrote uh, in a lonely place i believe i believe uh, pink Flam- pink flamingo road yeah flamingo road shack out on it. yeah shack out 101 or murder by contract oh shack out on 101 i think is a uh, lee marvin uh, film um you chose a really good one yes it is a lee marvin film no you chose a really good one i really enjoyed murder by contract uh i thought it had touches that felt modern it uh has sort of this like hangout quality you know mm-hmm. like when he's in la it sort of has this like slow meandering conversational you said philosophical right yeah in the sense that like when he's talking to one of the assigners like i i guess one of the hitmen who, not they're not hitmen they're basically people who were hired to like kind of like watch him he's talking about like murder but like 
if murder is committed by a soldier during wartime, is that we can still consider murder? It's just it's just like the basic conversation you have with each other, like when when you're like in middle school or high school, and like basic philosophy, or whatever. Like when is murder murder? When is murder like a soldier doing his duty? Something like that. And I was like, oh, this is quite the dialogue for this one dude who sound who's a hitman who's who's doing this for like a, as a job who seems to be having doubts about this job as well. Mm. So, Oh, I just want to correct myself. Um, that Flamingo Road is not written by uh, Dorothy B. Hughes. That, but she's a fantastic writer in A Lonely Place is based on her work. Uh, mm, Flamingo okay. Road is it's directed by Michael Curtiz, though. And I think that's what I'm getting confused because of the Bogart of it all. Um, but yeah, gotcha. Flamingo Road is another one I've always wanted to, uh, I always wanted to see. Um, uh, but yes, those conversation moments long conversations yeah long long sort of there's the one in the car with his two handlers and then he has one at the end with that sort of the blonde flame um where she reveals that she isn't actually dead not to get I mean, spoilers for a movie from 1958 um <laughs> yeah but there's like it, it struck me it's so odd that there are these like two talk heavy sequences that you almost find in films that are adapted from plays at the time which yeah. this is not at all no this is this one is written directly for film yeah not adapted from a play whatsoever that's the way i'm also surprised by because i'm the type of guy that watches like a bunch of action films i've throughout this podcast throughout watching these films discussing my own favorite films and watching films are on my list i've learned that i watch very surface level films where it's mostly like action and it's they don't really go in deep into the subject matter and i realized i also don't go deep into the subject matter because i'm used to watching stuff that's like on a surface level so as far as like something like this this is something i would expect to watch for class not just for like a film class but it's something that like i said for ethics class as well and maybe even for a psychology class as well because like i said he's a very much miso misogynistic man like there's a, there's you know there's inherent misogyny as you might expect from a 1950s film from america but the one i was really curious about was his Hatred of women. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think it's because it stems from his own trauma in the past. They don't go too much into it. They don't really need to, I guess. But I guess what my own thinking is that he was traumatized, maybe uh, abused by a woman, an older woman in his life. And that's why he has, I don't want to say quote unquote triggered when he sees lipstick on a cup, which by the way, the hotel, the, the waiter should not have given him a dirty cup. <laughs> so I guess he was right to yell at him for a little bit, a little bit. That waiter, I felt so bad for him. <laughs> I was just like, he is really, I mean, yes. I mean, a lipstick on a cup sucks, but then the way that he like, our protagonist like leans into him it's so it's almost like okay dude like it's not that like he's speaking like talking about like the quality of the waiter's personhood and oh it's my just kinda, god it's like the schlubby older man it's like dude he's he's not like i see i don't know if i i i like the reading it's that's interesting the abuse i see him as um an incel just mm. another you know what i mean just another it's like frustrated white guy that was promised the world and uh, can't live up to it. Like, sorry, but like, that's a huge part of the incel like problem is that like you grow up in a culture where like a lot of leads of TV shows and films look like you, i.e. Re regular random white guy, right? Yeah. You're, you're promised the world and suddenly you realize that like, you can't like women don't like to be talked to like objects. You need to have some sort of personality personality some <laughs> some sort of something to get by in life it's not just going to be granted to you so they just blame everybody else and uh, take their violence out on people and this yeah I, I, this just seems like an incel film to me um <laughs> made in 1958 um that's what i found interesting about it yeah that's a very interesting interpretation of that i, I didn't think of it like that but it's good to like see the connections from today to back then yeah that's something i could understand and also the sure. way he, he treats the She's a call girl, right? The woman he who invites to his room. Yes, yes. Yeah, because I've heard sex workers. Oh, excuse me. I've heard sex workers talk about like their own experiences, and they say usually though the incels are like the worst people to talk to or worst people to service because they're inherently misogynistic and hate women. So, yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's 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 so funny how. Yes, this is an influence on Scorsese, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. The big influence I saw from this was on Paul Schrader. 
who mm. I mean, Paul Schrader wears his influences on his sleeve more. Um, in fact, it's almost <laughs> every film of his has like the the protagonist writing in a journal, reflecting on the woe of life. And uh, he's talked about how the Brisson films, like Diary of a Country Priest, um, what an influence they are on him. So you see this character monologuing to themselves in Taxi Driver. You see it in mm. Light Sleeper. You see it in First Reformed. Uh, someone writing in their journal or having a voiceover about their view on the world, that's like the Paul Schrader cliche. He grew up in, uh, uh, I think, Dutch. He grew up in, I have it right here, Dutch, a Dutch Reformed church. Very mm. religious background. He didn't even watch a movie, I think, I believe until college. So, um, wow. Yeah. So uh, you, you think about a character like Travis Bickle. And yes, that comes from Paul Schrader's background and living in like also this, the 70s New York. That is an experience as a, as a thing out there. But this film also seems to feed into that. There's like this like lineage of... And then on, there's all these films from... These Laurie Anderson films from England, the Angry Young Men films. Um, there was this cinematic trend. There's this through line of pissed off uh, protagonists that just want to let the world quote unquote burn to use a cliche. <laughs> and uh, it's just surprising to see one as early as 1958. Definitely, for sure. So there's one scene I want to talk about in particular because it's just so I, I don't even have the right word for it it's when that's my dog hold on let me get oh, it no quick. problem yeah yeah no problem the scene i want to talk to you about is when he takes his first kill in the movie in the movie he takes a assignment from an employer to kill two men the first one is a barber the second one is some person in the hospital the one in the barbershop scene, it looks amazing. Just just like the, it has all the rules of like suspense from Alfred Hitchcock where you can see the very first thing you see are typed up men in a closet and they're like barbers. And then you see like a client come in and he's just like treats like a normal day. He doesn't know the danger that he's in. And you see the protagonist who is sharpening a razor on the leather tool right next to him. And then afterwards he closes the blinds and there's like this little loopy thing. I don't know what it's called. It's like a barbershop pole, whatever. And it says you're next. And oh, all that's, the, yes, yes. Love that. Love that. Everything about the scene, like, you know exactly what's going to happen. You just feel more tense as it happens. They don't, they don't show the murder on screen. No. They don't, they don't show any blood. It, it's just suggested and... It's over. The second scene, he goes to a hospital and just like suffocates a man. That's okay. That's here or there. But the first scene, it's just the buildup of tension, the buildup of suspense. Like, you know what's going to happen. The victim doesn't know. That's like all the rules of that, like a suspense that Hitchcock likes. And you see on screen how it works so well. Well, you know, what's funny is that Hitchcock is so careful and this feels just kind of like it just cuts to them on the floor like right. it kind of fades and then it fades back to him and it's so incidental do you know it almost feels like they shot some random like they got b-roll of the murder and then just kind of hobbled it together you're yeah. right they don't actually they never show the violence very rare do they show the violence yeah um the spinning barbershop pole i think that goes back to when barbers did bloodletting which is like not even around anymore i mean it's what killed george washington it's like letting out blood to relieve the symptoms of the the pain for a patient the only reason if i'm remembering my history correctly it, that bloodletting worked is because you lose so much blood that it gets you high like you get <laughs> lightheaded uh but barbers at one point did that so that those red and blue poles i believe were to like have a leftover from that when they when they mm. used to do that and now it just means barbershop right but but you're absolutely right pointing out that you're next uh that's a very clever simple elegant way to tie in the uh yeah I, he kind of just starts right away also before he goes out to la it's all so easy he yeah ki kills the people in the barbershop or has them tied up kills that one guy kills uh the one guy in the hospital it's all made to look so simple with such panache and then uh, the minute he's sent out to uh, the sunny coast of no problems, it's really difficult for some reason. So yeah, when he goes to LA, 
you know, he stalls. Like he spends if he spends like the week just doing a different activity each different day. Just like takes his time throughout the whole thing. He's like, nah, we got plenty of time. We're good. And then once it gets to him finally learning about the like his mark and it's a woman, and he learns that it's she's closely guarded by police because she's a witness in a crime that his employer was involved in. It gets much more difficult. He's like, oh, oh no. So my question to you is, we we eventually know his fate. We know his thoughts, quote unquote, uh, about like what he's thinking about. Do you think he intentionally stalled on purpose? Not just because he wanted to like see if the handlers had any um, tails on them. Do you think he intentionally did that on purpose? So, okay, that's a really great question. My reading on it is that he is taking advantage of the situation. Mm. Uh, that he is... Did you ever see... What was that Brad Pitt movie about... Um, uh, uh, murder contractors um, killing them softly killing them softly one of James Gandolfini's last movies right do you remember James Gandolfini's character in that so I, I know the title I haven't seen the film though it's a good movie that character James Gandolfini plays this hitman who comes into town who kind of is a little bit bloated and past his prime and might be criticized for spending too much on food service and prostitutes and not really getting the job done, hmm. right? So it's like, if I remember correctly, there's a scene in the, like, the morning when he's supposed to be doing the hit. Uh, he's like still in the hotel room partying, drinking, <laughs> hanging out, right? So th- this really reminded me of that, th- mm. of like a hitman who's kind of like a, a good time Joe and doesn't really want to do it yet and wants to take advantage of this being um, bankrolled. That's how I read this. Um, I also read this as... You know, I'm a poor working class schlub. I've never had a vacation in my life. I'm going to take this for what it's worth. I'm going to write it all out to the end. I mean, some of the things he's he's asking them, he's, he like asked them to take him to the beach. He says at one point, "I want to see the I want to see the ocean." It's like if you're on any job, regard even if it's not killing somebody, if you're sent somewhere for a job, you'd think that the first day you address something around the job it really does feel like he's like taking them for a ride and Mm. it's so it's such a funny choice he gets to la and he's like i want to do some sightseeing like that is so funny to me you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely for sure i thought um and i was a bit reaching in my thought process for this like after watching the film no no there's no no wrong answers in interpretation you know hey I, i was thinking that maybe he knew this would be his last job but he just didn't oh interesting yeah Because he had he had some how do I I don't want to say doubts but like it just seemed like he was disinterested in doing it anymore, and it didn't matter who the next mark would be. And of course, like once he learns that it's a woman who's next mark, he's even more anxious about it. So that's how I kind of viewed it as like he kind of knew he was it was gonna be like his last job, whether he would have been alive or not after the job. I'm not sure if he knew that for sure, you know. Well, did you also notice, like, what's so funny about the noir genre? Uh, I mean, it's all kind of bullshit anyways. I mean, there was <laughs> no one was making noir films at the time. Like, no one but he was like, we're going to make a noir film. It's like, often these films were made and then uh, posts, like, afterwards considered. They're classified as film noir. Right, exactly. Um, but the one thing a lot of these films have in common is that they're set in, like, dark urban environment, heavily at night, usually with silhouettes. Mm. Uh, this film completely in the sunshine right all daylight all la um and then when it gets to like the part of him being unable to kill her that almost feels like some sort of european comedy like it's (laughs) like uh there's that movie divorce italian style uh which i believe is like the husband constantly trying to murder the wife or see that she dies uh in order to like get out of the marriage and then Mm -hmm. also there's that elaine may film with walter Matthau, a new leaf so like there's this old-timey comedy concept of like oh just fun. looney tunes dude right. roadrunner and wiley e. coyote like there is a very much like an elmer fudd bugs bunny thing going on with him trying to kill her and it never working out but the film doesn't play that it's deadly serious and sober but he's like touring la and unable to kill his mark it's it's funny in a weird way definitely i, I that's how i viewed it as well and that's what i think is like the best part of some films where they take themselves so seriously they don't know they're being funny but they're being funny 
where to, if it, they try being like some people like they'll try to be funny because the whole movie is a comedy and it just doesn't work. Mm. It's like because they play it straight in this movie, right? Like it's I don't think they were self aware enough to know that some things were a bit too silly, you know. Like for the part where we we are discussed a bit, like when he's like chastising the waiter, not the waiter, I guess like the bellhopper. I don't know. I thought look the way he just continued. <laughs> to monologue like just like his frustration with the man like he just kept going like okay is it done no he's keep going like like dude you just talk about like life in general like oh my gosh you just disappointed this man's life you're kind of projecting here sir uh oh you're, <laughs> and you're still going <laughs> yeah yeah that you know you find that a lot uh the the blustery sort of leading man um also what's interesting about this guy he was a TV star, if I remember. Mm. Yeah, v- Vince Edwards. He was on a show called Ben Casey. So he was like, my parents maybe, but probably my grandparents more, would know him as a, a doctor. Because he was like Ben Casey, like the good time doctor on TV um, for a long time. But his style, so, but what I really wanted to talk about is that there was this acting style um, that was kind of new that came out of New York uh, theater. Brando and James Dean are like the uh, often extolled examples uh, Dennis Hopper in a way afterwards um, and Vince Edwards has a bit of that um, uh, in contrast to a lot of the other actors in the film um, he seems to be p- putting a bit more of like a modern touch on things whereas the others especially his two minders do feel a bit more old school so yeah and that, that scene with the waiter he does seem different you know he seems to be acting different in those scenes and I think it is influenced by this like new method quote unquote mm-hmm Definitely. All right. So I had to ask you, what did you think of the ending? Um, him being shot. Yeah, like just like the actually. Let's talk about the whole sequence because it's just a very unique. It's sequence. erotic. It's very erotic. There's the shots of the eyes. There's the shots of the hands of the piano. Um, it reminded me of Third Man ever yes. so slightly. Yes. Did, did you get that? Also, even yes. in the music, the music too, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, I, I. Yeah. I heard the music. I'm like, I've heard this before. And then I saw later when you like mentioned third man, I'm like, yep, that's it. Yep. Exactly. It's, it's incredible how this jaunty plucking electric, cool guitar, low mm-hmm. key jazz sound reminds me of, um, the, uh, the zither score from third man, which I love. That's one of my favorite noirs. If you want to call it a noir, which I guess I do. Um, <laughs> That's one of my favorite films. And so him ending in that like underground tunnel section, I was like, oh my God, well, this is how Third Man ends, literally. And then with her walking away and, and like the woman, quote unquote, being the survivor, that's also Third Man. There's a shot of her walking in the cemetery alone. Um, yeah, uh, really enjoyed it. I mean, kind of inevitable. I, I was guessing he was going to die in LA, especially there's this irony of like, if he really got to it and found a way to do it quickly, he might've lived. But I think it's also part of his own ego and stalling that he ended up here, you know? Yeah. That, that's something that I found still kind of funny. Cause like throughout the film, he made the points and like never carry a weapon, not even a knife because they're illegal, you know, like he's just a civilian. Like if people ever stop him, he has nothing on him. He, he could just play the, play the civilian card or play the tourist card. And he did, he mentioned he got stopped a couple of times too. And he's like, Oh, I'm just a tourist. And the cops had no reason to suspect him at all. Whereas in this part, when he finally gets, he goes through the sewer, he gets into the Mark's house and he is right there. He is like right behind her. He unties his tie and is about to murder her and he just can't do it. And then once he leaves, when he's getting away from the police, he finally has a gun to like use against the police. Mm -hmm. So I just found it like, I don't want to say the, I don't think the word is ironic. Uh, I'm not sure if it is. But I just found it funny, like, you, you could have gotten the gun to kill her, but you just didn't want to do it. You just wanted to do it your own way, I guess, because your ego. Stuff like that. Yeah, I, you know, they really make a big point out of this whole, he doesn't walk around with a gun. And I'm just kind of like, that's such an uninteresting... Because we've seen, I think it's just from a modern audience perspective... It's like, that's fine. There's plenty of ways that one can commit these murders. You know, it's like the fact that he doesn't, it's like, oh, he doesn't walk around with a gun. And they make a really big deal of it, uh, not only in the film, but in things written about the film. And it just doesn't really excite me. If anything, it's like, fine. I mean, there's films where it's like a strangler or a slasher, literally slashers, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. um, so uh, it's, but it's funny. It's like, he says this as like this, like, 
mark towards his honesty and cleanliness. It's like you're still a you're still a killer, you know. Honestly. Um, and yeah, a lot that that minor classical music. Uh, it says here it's Bach, uh, English Suite Number Two in A Minor. Um, mm. That's uh, yeah. Apparently, it's also being played in Schindler's List. Um, but yeah, that's what she's playing at the end. Uh, love when classical music kind of finds its way into these films. Um, and I think it also speaks towards her class. I mean, the house she's in alone, you know. Um, uh, There's a couple of noirs this reminded me of. It reminded me a little bit of The Long Goodbye, the idea of someone wandering around L.A. uh, trying to put things together, except he's more of a detective. This is the bad guy, the the antagonist. Um, There's that Richard Gere remake of Breathless, where he's also kind of following a well-to-do woman, and this, this reminded me a little bit of that. Um, there's two old noirs, Crime Wave and Tension. And this felt like Crime Wave and Tension to me just by using like real life LA locations. But yeah, while we're talking about like other parallels to the film, other than Third Man from the ending, those, <laughs> those other things kind of came to mind too. I just keep feeling like the final shot is his hand coming out of the tunnel, just like laying lifeless right there. Right. No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great ending. A couple things that I wanted to point out is there's like a funny documentary feel in mm. some sections. There is, uh, this, the guitar soundtrack is so cool and laid back. And from what I could find online, there was a really popular TV show called Danger, where, uh, the score was played, uh, by a jazz guitarist live each episode, which must have, been very, must have been very stressful just to like even get that done. Uh, like live television, like live music or a TV show. But um, this apparently sounds like that show Danger. So apparently this was like a style at the time, sort of a laid back, just a guitar, electric jazz guitar. Okay, awesome. So do you have any other thoughts about like the the film before I talk about like the production? Um, Let me see here if there's anything else that wasn't touched on. Um, funny that it's in Glendale. That's very much like a suburban area of LA now, not too far from me. It was just funny seeing Glendale. It's um just very safe and like clean and not somewhere where you'd think murders would be happening. So it's just funny that that's where they end up. Oh, um, one thing that was pointed out in my research that I actually totally see. Uh, Sterling Hayden in the Asphalt Jungle has this like dream of like a getaway cabin, this idyllic rural cottage this cabin his like beautiful place like this fantasy one day i mean one could argue that's like the shawshank redemption uh fantasy the whole uh you know uh by the river that like place that like getaway spot where he'll finally meet he'll finally meet each other right it's like right. um this uh idea of like the bad guy having this like little country cottage in the middle of nowhere as a dream uh <laughs> i love when that pops up and this happens here uh, he does talk about his, like, you know, dream cottage. I love that it shows L.A. at night. It shows the grid. Like, if you go kind of high up mm. in the mountains in L.A. at night, and you actually see it a lot in film, like Mulholland Drive, the, the David Lynch's film has a lot of this. You see, like, this, like, the glittering lights of L.A., the circuit board of L.A., and this film has that. And so I thought that was, like, an extra nice little point. Uh, the... <laughs> okay, so all the deaths are off screen, or you mm. hear them. You hear a scream, right? How funny is it that eventually at one point they just wander onto a studio set? Remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like how easy that must have been for them. It's like, well, where do they go? Well, we could just literally shoot it behind this room that we're talking right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. All they had to do was go outside to the back lot. And, you know, they didn't have to secure a location, didn't have to pay any permits, didn't have to deal with outsiders or be even inside. They're literally in the studio back lot, which must have been like, it's like <laughs> the day they realized that must have been so like happy and easy. It's like, fellas, fellas, let's just do it right there. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> uh, so that kind of made me laugh a little bit. It's just like the easiest uh, decision they could make. I want to um, talk about like the, the the kill scene right here because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I just found it so funny because like they're going to kill this man with a gun. Right. But they've never killed a man before. So they have no idea kind of like what they're doing. Like you have the basic idea. You, you shoot a man with a gun. He usually goes down dead, but they're leading him in this backlight towards like a secluded area. And the guy, he pretends to like, like faints, you know, he, he feels sick. He's about to go down. And I guess these guys still kind of care about him because one of them, like the guy guy with the gun, he goes there and he like, he's like, Hey, Hey man, you all right. (laughs) And then he's like disarmed very quickly. Mm. 
and just murdered with a rock, you know, just being to, by, being to death by a rock. And then he eventually catches the other guy, and that death is on uh, is off screen as well. I just found that scene funny. <laughs> like, it yeah. was just so funny. Yeah. I mean, those, especially considering those two bumbling men saw him as, like, such a thorn in their side. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, with a rock, it's, it's pretty brutal. Those as interesting characters, too, like the taciturn, dour one that he was giving the instructions, and the other one is sort of the, uh, come on, let's go, the, like, the negative one, who mm-hmm. is, like, always against him, uh, is, like, a really good duo for, like, classic gangsters. Uh, and you, you see that a lot. Um, like, one's a bit more patient, and one's kind of flying off the handle or a bit more emotional. Right. Um, a famous example with almost, like, erotic undertones is the big combo. The two gangsters and that. I mean, it's kind of inferred that they're even in a relationship. I don't really see that here. But um, yeah, yeah, again, as soon as the death happened off screen, I'm like, here we go again. <laughs> now is a section where we talk about the production of the film, like what what went into the film's making. Murder by Contract was directed by Irving Lerner from an original screenplay by Ben Simcoe. And at some point, Ben Maddow who had been nominated for an Academy Award for his screenplay for The Asphalt, Asphalt Jungle, did uncredited work on the script. He also went uncredited in several of noble films, including Johnny Guitar and The Wild One. Johnny Guitar is a fantastic film. If okay. you've never seen it, that is, it's Nicholas Ray in his Rebel Without a Cause period. So ah. it's like bright colors, great editing. It, it, Johnny Guitar is a fantastic film. Also has Sterling Hayden. And it's funny that you mentioned Asphalt Jungle, because if the same screenwriter did uncredited work on this, well, there you go. There, that explains that like gangster <laughs> looking for the cottage. It's it's in both films, you know. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like the fact that he's doing these these jobs to get a house. That's hey, it. man, the, ho- <laughs> the housing market's crazy these days, you know. <laughs> yeah, must have been crazy <laughs> Just, back then too. <laughs> I know, but yeah, yeah, exactly. So the film was shot in seven days in February 1958 in Los Angeles, which always amazes me, like how. You can get like close to an hour and a half uh, feature film in just seven days. That that schedule must have been crazy just to get the locations and everything. As a filmmaker myself, I don't know how they did it. I really don't. It's very impressive. I mean, eight day, like seven or eight days. It is um, insane. It's mm. absolutely insane uh, with what she was able to, uh, what they were able to accomplish. One thing I want to point out that I found really interesting. Um, is that it was shot by Lucian Lucian Ballard or Lucian Ballard? I yeah. think it's Lucian. Lucian. He worked on like major films uh, in old Hollywood. Worked with like every major director. Was infamously married to Merle Oberon, the uh, actress, classic Hollywood actress. I think I know her best from Wuthering, Wuthering Heights. Um, I believe she's British. But what, what I found interesting about their relationship is that she eventually burned herself like really, really badly from some accident. And uh, Ballard developed a special camera just to light her uh, wow. to kind of obscure her facial scars. Yeah. And whenever they worked together, like uh, they'd like find a way to like sort of hide her scars or disguise them. Um, but I remember learning that on some film for some noir like years ago that Lucian Ballard is like this like really sensitive dude who's married to a famous actress and worked on all these films. So when I saw his name pop up, I'm like, oh, no wonder it looks so good. It has a fantastic <laughs> DP. That's awesome. I'm going to look forward to that guy. So this movie was produced by Orbit Productions and it was distributed theatrically in, De- in December 1958 by Columbia Pictures. And Columbia still ha- holds the copyright for this film dated October 1st, 1958. Orbit was a poverty row. They had to be like a poverty row studio, which also makes sense why they shot it in LA. It it does look a little cheap in some places, Mm -hmm. which makes sense. All those poverty row, uh, Eagle, uh, you know, a lot of these studios that were not the big five kind of rudely called poverty row. Um, Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. It definitely looks like one of their films. Well, it still looks good. Like, and as far as like the influence of reputation, part of the film's reputation lies in its influence on director Martin Scorsese, who cites it as one, the one that has influenced his approach to filmmaking the most. And like you said earlier, it kind of influenced Taxi Driver as well with like the main character and also how he's like with himself in the apartment. Well, that's Mm -hmm. what I was thinking too. And he praised its 
quote, economy of style and compares its ability to communicate ideas through cinematic shorthand to the work of Jean-Luc Godard and Robert Bresson. Bresson came up. He came up earlier when we were talking about Paul Schrader. I mean, Diary mm. of a Country Priest. Yep, I see. Sorry, it's Eagle Lion. Uh, the other Poverty Row studio that I know is Republic Pictures. And okay. mo- Monogram a little bit, but mostly uh, Eagle Lion and Republic. Eagle Lion put out like Detour, one of the most famous noirs of all time. Um, yes, uh, Scorsese talked about seeing this with friends on a double bill with, like, I believe it was a Yul Brynner western yeah uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Th- this movie had a huge huge impact on him and he's talked about it he's talked about it like since the 70s as like one of his favorite uh, for at least for a long time um as one of his like favorite favorite films you definitely see when he's alone in his apartment with the with the pool cube doing the sit-ups uh or the push the pull-ups um that all feels very taxi driver that feels incredibly and then the gangsters with personalities the gangsters that are a bit like that just want to CLA or have their own preferences beyond just murder. That feels like mean streets up to Goodfellas, up to casino, you know? Um, I can see how this is an influence on him. Definitely. All right. So that's all I have on them. Do you have anything else that you also got from research? Got a couple things. Um, it was filmed at the Charlie Chaplin studio on La Brea. Mm. Those, it says here that these are now A&M records, uh, which is where the, we are the world was recorded. Kind of a funny oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. fact. Um, but I also know that Charlie Chaplin studios, if you're ever in LA, uh, you visit the site of the former Charlie Chaplin studios. It's now uh, Jim Henson Muppet studios. Mm. So there's a giant Kermit the frog out front. And then there's a little doorway and written in the cement is uh, Charlie Chaplin's handprint and signature. Wow. Uh, they kept it. It's on La Brea. You can, I think it's La Brea. You can like, it's on the street. It's a very busy street, but you can like walk up to it and look at uh, Charlie Chaplin's uh, handprint still on uh, this little slab of cement in front of what, where this was filmed. Now Muppet Studios, now where they do all that stuff. <laughs> puppet magic. So I thought that was kind of a cool fact. Um, oh, uh, the guy that did the music was Perry Botkin Sr. I did not know him, but he did the music. He's most famous for... Do you know what TV show he composed the music for? I'm going to think Danger because you mentioned it. No, Beverly Hillbillies. Oh! Very, <laughs> very different. Very different style. Yeah. Uh, oh, act- the actress Thelma Todd had a restaurant on the PCH, the Pacific Coast Highway, um, which just Highway 1 out here. When they're on the beach... That little building in the background is her, is Thelma Todd's restaurant, which mm. from what I understand is like an old, um, old Hollywood hangout. I don't believe it's open anymore. Going into an LA gun shop. I mean, this is very different, but it reminded me of Pulp Fiction because so much of that third act is in an LA gun shop, like a weapon shop, the basement specifically. Mm-hmm. Oh, the music almost has this like, I know we mentioned Third Man, but it also sounds a bit like uh, Italian pop. Like it's mm. very like, springy and uh jaunty and um does not sound like what was like popular then like the doo-wop of the time or even the popular jazz of the time it's uh it's like how elevator of the gallows has that uh i believe it's miles davis in the soundtrack has this like singular jazz soundtrack um it's haunting it works it's sparse uh it also feels slightly john waters-esque in its parody of the main guy because this Mm. guy vince edwards he's trying so hard to be this like cool dude but he doesn't have it together because he's blowing (laughs) up every second and he's saying dumb shit but like you can see him it's like (laughs) it's almost this music is almost what it sounds like in his head of being a cool dude do you know what i mean yeah 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 with the with the slick back hair and his almost greaser style and it's like i don't take guff from nobody like this 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 almost sounds like the internal scoring uh, soundtrack of uh, what's like a cliche at the time of of like a sort of a uh, you know greaser style like this. He's not a greaser, but uh, you know there, there's shades of it. Um, I'm thinking uh, like kind of like in Spider-Man Three, like when Peter Parker has like the symbiote and he oh the cabaret, yeah something like that where <laughs> yeah yeah it, it basically makes him think what it embodies what Peter Parker thinks is cool. And but he's really just dorky, you know. For sure, for sure. No, I, I, I totally, I totally hear you there. Uh, yeah, that's a man. I love that we were able to pull a Spider-Man three comparison <laughs> out of this obscure nineteen fifty. That's awesome. Big fan of that. That's that's great. <laughs> I'm looking at Irving Lerner. You know, it's funny. Irving Lerner. It looks like he directed a bunch of Ben Casey episodes. So he mm. worked with 
Yeah, he worked with Vince Edwards again. Also, Ben Casey, from everything I find about it, its biggest cultural relevance is um, the opening symbol. Like, if you can somehow even work work in the opening intro to the show Ben Casey, just the audio, it begins with, like, the symbol of man, woman, birth, death, infinity. And this was a very famous thing in the 60s. Like, if you if you just said things in that order, people would know you're talking about this. And it showed the symbols for each. But um, from what I can understand, that's, like, the most famous thing that people still remember from this random TV show. Just how weird and jarring the intro was. It's just funny that, like, this a show can, like, end, and what, people, what the general public remembers about it, it's this bizarre, like opening credit sequence do you know what i mean but yeah this yeah, is yeah. what yeah this is why people know vince edwards was the show it's it's very it really it shows like a schismed la it's this very flat landscape and mm-hmm. yet there's like so much tension of like waiting for him to like be done with sightseeing and waiting for this murder to happen there's just like this sort of like low-key tension in this uh, alien landscape um of like town like like you know parts of the town that aren't even around anymore i mean ellie's looks very different now um i bet yeah um but uh that's about all that i had on the um actual production side of it um uh oh and uh just that apparently the score influenced the departed uh oh yeah the guitar pared down style so there's another scorsese connection I, i mean to be honest i don't really remember the score of the departed i remember more just like random rolling stone songs roaring in in the middle of nowhere but yeah. um <laughs> yeah um but uh yeah i mean i'm so glad that you uh chose this uh because i really enjoyed this uh bizarre little la sunshine noir <laughs> one more thing i wanted to mention is that uh learner came from documentary the director mm. the director made a documentary on uh, uh toscanini uh so there is this documentary sort of like laid back feel sort of in their face at times i love when a director has experience as a photojournalist as a documentarian because you see it in their work like john houston is the most famous example when he made those like world war ii propaganda films arguably even kubrick like the 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 blank check podcast talks about how once in a while in his films it'll go to handheld and that's a, such a great contrast because it, it's it's a- alarming for the viewer and it harkens back to this like simpler mode of filmmaking of just like being on the street pointing the camera clicking and going you definitely get that feeling uh in this and it's interesting to to, to find out that learner does have a documentary background it's not as like like you mentioned hitchcock in the beginning and like yes i see like the similar like tension threads to hitchcock but hitchcock is very like set up the cameras here the actors move here this mm. film has like a looser quality uh, and when you find out that he did work in documentaries before is uh you know and uh, that was very popular at the time too it just makes sense okay yeah that's a good way to end this yeah yeah <laughs> all right so that concludes our conversation today thank you so much alex for being here i really learned a lot from our conversation today you said a lot of names that i did not know the name did not know any reference to so I'm going to look it up afterwards. <laughs> oh, nice, man. Hey, always happy to throw some new stuff out there. Awesome. So I got to ask you, was Murder by Contract a hit or a miss for you? It was a hit. It was a light hit. It was a light hit for me. Yeah. I found the meandering nature of it a little frustrating, but I also <laughs> really appreciated it for what it was and that there was really nothing else like this the year it was made. Um, just the conversational tone of, angsty hitman i mean it's very ahead of its time in that way how about you i would say it's a, it's a hit like it's not a miss for me kind of like you it's a light hit and i i do my i do see myself watching it again because i really enjoyed watching it you know it's just like a it's like a casual viewing type of film if you know what i mean yeah man totally you mind if i ask what uh what, what what's another noir you like or what, what like, in terms of the genre is there yeah. one that like that you you hold above all others or a couple films that you like so, I don't want to say the first one I saw, but I guess like the first one I knew was a film noir because I kind of like knew what I was looking for was Double Indemnity, right. because I watched it for you know film discussion class. Maltese Falcon was like okay for me, you know, like I. It, that's how I feel too. It's it's out of the classic. It's the one that I go back to least. It's it's not as exciting as the others, unfortunately. Yeah, I like most of like neo noir stuff, kind of like um the Nice Guys, and what else? For sure. 
No, there's tons of good neo-noir. Um, the 90s especially. Yeah, there's there's some, there are fantastic neo-noirs uh, even still being made. I mean, just a couple of years ago, Under the Silver Lake, you know, it is a bottomless uh, genre. And I'm not that picky with like defining, this is a noir, this isn't a noir. Um, yeah. There are a couple trappings that usually, usually it's a person against a system is like the easiest explanation. Um, uh, someone who's kind of like, fucked from the beginning um if you don't mind me saying so yeah um, uh yeah and that's where i find a lot of its like socially progressive uh cool aspects is this idea of like the system is corrupt the this the cards are stacked against you you often have to like turn away from you know legal means or societal means to achieve what you want also it's very simply often about dumb people with a smart plan and it not be really being able to be executed you know, yeah. but uh, I love Double Indemnity. Yeah, that's it. That house is around the corner from here. That the, the house. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's cool. That's cool. I guess the one I really like. Uh, I told. I don't know why I just remember right now is the Third Man, because so I'm a huge fan of Orson Welles and just like the whole movie, I, I was just in love with. Like I used like some of the inspiration for it to like make a video I made back when I was learning how to make video, and to this day it's like one of my most popular ones. And uh, I guess Les Samurai. Nice. Le Samurai, I guess that counts. Oh, Le Samurai is so good. Yeah, uh, Elaine Delon. Uh, yes, that is a fantastic. That I, I, you know, I would count it because it, it you know, even though it's sixty-seven, um, you know, it definitely, it's definitely made like as an homage to, uh, you know, Melville. Frequently, arguably, all of Melville's films, uh, Jean-Pierre Melville, uh, you know, have these noir homages, even to the point where it feels awkward. It's like people would not be <laughs> dressing like that, you know. Um, right the, oh the, the last seduction that was the 90s neo-noir i was trying to remember if you've never seen the last seduction great film has linda fiorentino who people probably know best from men in black she's like mm. the woman in men in black this is before that yeah yeah love the third man I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to go to vienna and ride that uh what's it called um the circus wheel so oh uh, yeah the ferris yeah. wheel yeah oh the ferris wheel yes it is horrifying it is creaky <laughs> You're like, is this thing going to break while I'm on it? But it's it's beautiful. It's so fun. And uh, there's actually a movie theater in Vienna that plays Third Man. I think it's still open like every night. So if wow. you're ever in Vienna, yeah, dude. So if you're ever in that part of the world, you can actually go see Vienna. It, you know, you can go see the Third Man in Vienna. So uh, I was thinking like maybe they, they also had like Before Sunrise there too because that was oh, shot in yeah. Vienna. You're, you know, I always think that that's Paris, but you're right. It is Vienna, isn't it? Yeah, before sunset, it's the one in Paris. That's right. That's right. And then the last one's Greece, or yeah, in Greece. Right, 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 right. Awesome. Cool, man. So, where can we find you on social media? Only film noir, uh, like how you found me. I'm <laughs> gonna be doing some uh, spooky noir, horror noir. A lot of overlap in the horror genre, the noir genre. In fact, and then they sort of become like mishmash together with giallo in italy so uh yeah I'm, I'm on only film noir i've been posting more on medium my name is alex vlahov but most people can find me on my instagram only film noir awesome and i i had to say for those of you who are considering following him he's a really good guy like uh he does like kind of like video like not video essays but like essays in like the captions of the photos he captures and they're really good he's a writer thank you thank yeah. you man i really appreciate that so that's it for today, folks. You've been listening to the Hit List Podcast. My name is Jason Ramirez. This is Season season 5, Episode 5. And it been, until next time, cross off a new film from your list. Bye. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. <laughs>